a whirlwind tour of modern, uh, ancient Ethiopia, take two. That's episode five, in which we actually go this time. In episode four, I said I was going to go on a whirlwind tour of Ethiopia and never actually got there. I think I, I think I uh, dropped into a pub on the way to Ethiopia and got chatting with a few people, telling them all my plans, you know, this is how I'm going to go, you know, uh, and um, never actually left the pub. I think they, you know, found me on the footpath outside the next morning. But this time I am off. Here we go. Now, ancient Ethiopia. Uh, I'm calling that everything from Tedros back. And I called modern Ethiopia everything from Tedros forward. So everything from the late 19th century to now is modern Ethiopia. I'm not making this up. This is what most people, this is how most people divide things up. And everything before Tedros, we'll call ancient Ethiopia. Uh, ancient, ancient, uh, it's, it's a nice, neat line to draw from Tedros forward and Tedros back because uh, there's before Tedros there's I don't think there's many primary source records um, oh, except for you know religious uh, writings and things like that um, well let's put it this way you don't get the situation that you get in Rome where you can actually uh, where you can read um, Julius Caesar's diary you know or Cicero you know, where Cicero, he, and this is 2,000 years ago, you know, Cicero is, um, has, he had a, a secretary, a slave secretary, he's a very good friend of Cicero's, um, who, Tyro, who used to actually write down his speeches in shorthand, and these are, you know, essentially still published to this day, you can, I've got them, uh, so, you know, and, you're kind of in there, he's written down um, Cicero's exercise regime, you know, and this is, so Ethiopian history, like Irish history, isn't like that. Uh, You don't have that level of detail, Uh, you know, like uh, with the Romans, um, you have their battle, their battles, you know, you can pick a battle and you know in detail when they broke through the flank, the left flank, and, you know, how many men they lost on that flank and how many men they lost on that other flank and all that sort of thing in great detail 2,000 years ago. But then in Ethiopia, you get a battle like the one I mentioned uh, between Johannes and the Egyptians or the Mardists, and nobody knows anything, you know. There was a key uh, no, no, yeah, there's nothing. There's no details um, written down. Nobody kept a diary, as far as I can tell. So, you know, you get a situation like you know there was a battle, the battle in which Johannes got killed, and um, was it an odd, angry bullet? You know, was it? A, was did he did he get hit by a spear? I don't know, uh, but you know. In the chaos of a battle, somehow Johannes 
got shot, I think. Um, but, you know, how would you know who did it? Now, the Ethiopians are good at one thing, I think. If there's no records on, you know, no one actually uh, wrote down or there's no record of what happened in a given moment in time in history, um, I do sense, like a lot of cultures, I'm sure my culture's the same, they fill in the blanks now. Uh, so, you know, you might get a situation where, okay, um, Johannes got killed. Okay, he was a Tigrayan emperor. Uh, he was succeeded by an Amharan emperor, uh, Menelik. Now, Menelik gained from the death of Johannes, you know. So, one way to look at that is to say, okay, who benefited from the death of Johannes? And this is the way the ancient this is why the ancient history often works, you know, um, and not just in Ethiopia, but everywhere. Okay, so let's put two and two together. Logic, this is logic, okay? Uh, it's a certain type of logic where you start at the end and work backwards. All right, who benefited from the death of Johannes? Well, Menelik, Menelik tick. You know, Menelik II. Um, the second after the original Menelik I, who was the mythical son of the Queen of Sheba and Solomon, King Solomon. Uh, right. So, therefore, Menelik arranged for Johannes to die in the chaos of battle. Uh, he sent a person in there uh, specifically for that purpose uh, because Menelik and Johannes weren't even at war with each other. This was um, Johannes fighting for Ethiopia against an external force. I think it was the Mardist at that time. You know, someone from over the Sudan area. Uh, now, so that's the logic. Um, now, you know, um, I'm inclined to think that it could have been a Mardist that killed Johannes and not someone on the Ethiopian side who was had Amharan slash Menelik sympathies coming up behind Johannes and shooting him in the back uh, and taking advantage of the fact that they were in the heat of battle. But then again, there's no way to prove that that wasn't the case. Uh, so everyone is feel, you know, feel free to believe that Menelik ordered the execution, the assassination of Johannes. Now that's how a lot of the ancient world works. Uh, just about everything I will say will have that sort of flavor to it when I do my whirlwind tour of ancient Ethiopia. All right, what's another example of that? Uh, another example of that is Solomon and Sheba, you know, and I think I touched on this in an episode. Uh, you know, the, um, somehow the indigenous peoples of Ethiopia, by the look of it, you know, I might even have this wrong because there's no records, uh, ended up uh, in a melting pot with Semites and probably other groups too. This is why we call everything the Habesha, you know, the mixed tribes and all that sort of stuff. Okay, so what we do, what are the facts? All right, we have people in that area of Ethiopia, modern Ethiopia, who 
do definitely seem to culturally and physically and blood-wise and traditions-wise seem to be a bit of a mix of Semitic peoples and local peoples. Okay, what do we do about that? We don't know how that came to be. You know, maybe even before Abraham, Semites came down from Semite land and uh, or came up into the hills uh, in from Semite land and um, and violently uh, settled the place, you know, and dominated. I, I say that's more likely than the other way around because the Semites were very powerful people. Uh, now. That could be the case. Or, if you want to believe it, you can work your way backwards and say, all right, there must be a logic to this. There must be a nice, neat way that this happened, you know. It wouldn't have just been, you know, we don't want to think there was just popular. Let's let's make this bigger, you know, because um, let's make it more glorious. All right, maybe, well, here's how it really happened, you know. some most Ethiopians might say to you, here's how it really happened. The Queen of Sheba got on an elephant and went to meet Solomon up in Judah. And King Solomon was entranced by the Queen of Sheba. Now, you know, personally, I think the Queen of Sheba might be a metaphor for... Um, anyway, don't worry about that. So, and then... She went back to Ethiopia, taking the Ark of the Covenant with her. Which, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which King Solomon had in his temple. Now, King Solomon might be mythical as well, but let's call him real. uh, Because, you know, you're allowed to work backwards and say that sort of thing. And the Ark of the Covenant, you know, the... um, the, As mentioned in the Bible, uh, the Bible gives you... Whoever wrote the scriptures about that Ark of the Covenant uh, gave all the measurements, so, you know, it's not hard to make it. You can make it to order. It was pretty much an Ikea sort of situation where in the Bible it says how many cubits long it was and how many cubits wide and what it was made of, you know, and all that sort of thing. So you could make one um, if you wanted to. Um, Now, well, actually, King Solomon, you know, even... Legend has it that King Solomon had two, a real one and a fake one. Uh, and the Ethiopians, I think, think that, say that uh, the, the Queen of Sheba um, put the fake one where the real one had been in King Solomon, in a special place in King Solomon's temple, and then spirited the you know went back to Ethiopia and spirited the real one back to Ethiopia so Solomon unknowingly had the fake one which might have then you know been stolen by the Babylonians and the Egyptians haha so you stole the fake one we've got the real one you know all that sort of stuff um the ark of the covenant the ark you know that that was in uh, that movie um raiders of the lost ark you know what i mean uh the americans are saying that it's in america now you know the real one you know but that's only in a movie but then again the way people watch movies i don't watch movies i've only probably seen five movies in 10 years uh but there are a lot of people who when they watch movies it kind of enters their consciousness is probably real i bet a lot of americans think that the ark of the covenant actually is in hangar 54 if I've got the right hanger. Uh, so, um, but anyway, 
If you're an Ethiopian, all right, we don't know if the Ark of the Covenant... Well, actually, Arks of the Covenant do exist because the Bible actually gave the measurement. So I'm pretty certain there's lots of Arks of the Covenant in the world. Um, uh, but the question is, which is the real one? I don't think there was a real one. Um, or if there was a real one, because maybe the, you know, the scripture writers said... Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, we shall describe it, we intend for you to build it. So then when someone did build it, it was the real one. Now that would be pretty easy to do. Uh, but the point is, the Ark of the Covenant was built, or supposed to be built, to house the Ten Commandments as written into stone. You know, Moses got those from the mountains and brought them down, you know. Um, so which of these Arks of the Covenant has Moses' uh, Ten Commandments? Well, we don't know. Well, we, there is one Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia to this day, but no one's allowed to go and look at it. So that one could have very carefully guarded, you know. Um, only one, you know, one person is the guardian of that Ark. And he, once, once he goes in to start guarding the ark, a priest of some sort, once he goes in to start guarding that ark, he's never allowed to come out again. No one else, no one else is let in. I suppose they must hand food in there. I don't know. Uh, anyway, so I'm sure when, you know, this, the current guardian dies, you know, another guy gets promoted and says, all right, in you go, and that's you for your life. And, um, and he gets in there, and I'm sure there is an ark in there. Absolutely sure of that. Um, you know, you wouldn't probably, there's no way anyone's ever going to be able to carbon date it. So, uh, all right, now, so that's the way a lot of history works, including in Ethiopia. It is your choice. I really am not in the business of, you know, wanting to convince anybody one way or the other, you know. Um, but, it is, you know, I, I think that's a really great thing about the histories of the ancient world. You get to choose what you want to believe. And it's not the job of someone like me to say, to push you in one direction or another. I am a, for a Martian when it comes to this sort of stuff. I step back, you know. This is what I was getting at in the previous episode. There's all sorts of people out there, you know, you go out to dinner with them. Right, I'm going to convince you that the Ark of the Covenant that sits in whatever chapel it is in Ethiopia is the real one and um, some such and such wrote a book about it and that proves scientifically that that is the real one and, you know, then... You know, you sit there and say, yeah, okay. You know, you don't say, oh, would you mind if I go in there and carbon date the thing? You know, you don't go and say that. Um, in fact, it'd be a bit mean um, and unsophisticated to suggest that. Sometimes I think it's better to leave these things not known, you know. Um, uh, uh, so let that just sit there. All right. Uh, uh, and there are other examples like that. There are a thousand examples in history. I could actually easily pick a thousand from any other culture you like where that happens, you know. Um, well, every origin story in history, you know, where we came from before people kind of worked out that we, were, we probably evolved, you know, from, uh, from apes 
of some description. Um, if you want to believe that, if you don't, great, you know. Um, uh, but before anybody knew that we were evolved from apes, um, and people came up with all sorts of... Every culture on the planet pretty much came up with an origin story. This is another example of, you know, when you're on a tour of the ancient world, um, that it's something to, you know, it's, it's something... It, it makes human history a lot more enjoyable than chimpanzee history, for example, because chimpanzees have got a really crap history, you know. Go up to them and they're just interested in bananas, you know. But anyone who's got a really fantastic story about where they came from, well, you're probably looking at a human. And, um, and anyone who is pretty much uh, focused on the reality and the fact of the existence of bananas and that they are great to eat, well, you're probably looking at a chimpanzee, you know. Uh, so I'm not necessarily into uh, making sure that everything is factual, you know, because all the imagination and the working backwards and the creating of myths and all that sort of stuff, I think that's what separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom, you know, and and I'm pretty pleased about that. I'd rather be someone who, you know, it's well, history's a lot more interesting when it's got all that stuff in it than when it hasn't. Look, it probably, like all things, you know, um, can be used for good or evil. The myths, you know, God can be used for good or evil. Um, nuclear energy could be used for good or evil. Myths can be used for good or evil. But, you know, either way, it's colourful. It's a lot more colourful than any story a monkey's going to tell you. Uh, so there you go. So you get the gist of roughly the way I look at histories. Uh, you know, and all, from all the different angles I look at histories. Uh, how is it that I even... What's making me look at histories in all these different ways well some people and i think i would agree with them would say my social construction uh i'm so i'm as socially constructed as anyone else uh we spoke about social or i spoke about social construction in the previous episode uh social construction i love that whole subject you know uh, i've only been i've been getting more and more switched on to it lately um you know this is um it's, it's just the fact that I live in the 21st century that I can even think like this, you know. If I was back in uh, ancient Roman times or whatever, I, you know, I, I and everyone around me would just accept, and I'm talking more late ancient Roman Empire, you know, back when it turned Christian, I and everyone around me would just take something like the fact of God as a self-evident fact, wouldn't even think to question it at a guess. You know, let's say I lived in Constantinople at a time, you know, when they had all those icons and all that sort of thing, you know, which is analogous to the way Ethiopia was at the same time, I think, you know. Um, uh, and, uh, and I would... <laughs> it wouldn't even occur to me uh, to, to wonder, you know, whether... God was 
a, a reality or not. It'd be a self-evident truth, and I'd work backwards. You know, it'd be quite natural for me. Do Ethiopians, modern Ethiopians, have this way of thinking? Well, they'd be just like us, wouldn't they? Uh, some would, some wouldn't. But my um, goddaughter has a year 11 and 12, you know, Ethiopian curriculum school book, uh, a history book. Um, I had a little read of that, you know, the first few pages. And, uh, well, uh, that draws heavily... Uh, that starts off talking about Herodotus, uh, the father of modern history as we understand it, Herodotus, Herodotus the Greek, who, you know, liked to have evidence of history, uh, tried to work off evidence. Uh, uh, sometimes there was two major Greek historians. I get them mixed up a little bit. One was more into facts. One was more into telling a story. Uh, if I got the wrong one, you know, oh well. <laughs> uh, now, um, so, now, in the year 11 and 12 Ethiopian history textbook, they very much come at things the way I would. Uh, so the children are taught rather the same way that we are these days in history lessons, that there is a way of looking at histories from a primary sources angle you know you need to have evidence uh, before you can believe something is true so my reading of that Ethiopian year 11 and 12 history textbook was such that uh, uh, you know something like the Ark of the Covenant Covenant would definitely be judged to be arguably uh, fake <laughs> um, and that Solomon and Sheba definitely mythical or legendary, uh, you know, the, the, the book basically started off in the Greek tradition and of history. Uh, so, you know, uh, there must be every year hundreds and thousands of, uh, well, hundreds or thousands of students leaving the year 11 and 12 uh, year levels uh, who have it in their heads that, ah, oh, you know, the Queen of Sheba might have been mythical. Excuse all the aeroplanes going past. Uh, I'm out near Tullamarine Airport, horse riding. Uh, now, so, but then, you know, there'd be other Ethiopians who would take it as a self-evident truth that the, that, um, the Ark of the Covenant, Solomon and Sheba, all of that is absolutely rock-solid fact, you know. Uh, I've got to be careful not to uh, disrespect people who actually really like facts with their history, you know. I lean towards enjoying myths myself. That's my thing. Uh, but I have to be very respectful, just as respectful, to people who uh, are not going to accept any history unless they've got some facts to go with it. Um, so... Uh, something like, and and if you're talking the line of Jewish or Israel, the Israelite kings from Abraham through to Solomon, um, I think there's, you know, if you, uh, if there's independent evidence of none of them, as far as I can tell, yeah, outside their own scriptures, you know, um, 
except for David. I think there's a, a mention of David on a stele somewhere, you know, one of those stone things that just list kings' names and things like that. Um, so, you know, maybe David existed. Uh, whether he was a great king or not, no idea. Had to be fairly great, you know, to get his name written on a piece of stone. Uh, but you know, these, he may have been less great than uh, the Jews would have us believe these days. I'm absolutely almost certain that Solomon was much less great than the Jews, or the Jewish scriptures at least, would have us believe. Um, <laughs> the story of Solomon, and he really is important to ancient Ethiopian history, you know, because they're descended from him, or at least their emperors are. Um, Solomon, you know, you, you have this, you have two great empires at the time of Solomon. Uh, you have the Egyptians and the Babylonians, essentially. Uh, the and in between you have this shepherd race you know which have their moments of you know being fairly great kings or fairly great chiefs i'm sure but you have uh, and the this shepherd race the israelites in between um they are they become slaves of one of the great superpowers at some at some times and slaves of the other great superpower of the time at other times so sometimes they were the slaves of the egyptians sometimes they were the slaves of the babylonians uh but basically they're wedged in between these two superpowers you know and they're essentially powerless for a lot of that time as far as i can tell um now so um i guess they have to what what have they got as their weapon to make themselves feel big? Uh, and and by the way, whatever their weapon was, it's worked because I don't see much of Egypt anymore in the modern 21st century and I don't see much of Babylon either, but I see a hell of a lot of Israel still. So somehow we had two superpowers back then, Babylon and Egypt, major superpowers, you know, think the USA and China, and in between you got this mob um, stuck in between. Let's imagine that mob is what? What's in between China and, um, uh, let's say North Korea. And so North Korea, uh, says to themselves, well, you know, we haven't, we're not a superpower. Uh, what can we do to make ourselves a superpower? Well, get some nuclear weapons is a pretty simple and obvious way to do that. Uh, but Another way might be to sit down and write your own history and, and write yourself up to be greater than these other two, you know. So uh, you might write a Moses into your history who is on first name basis with the Egyptian uh, pharaoh. Now, the Egyptian pharaoh is a little bit like, you know, Donald Trump times 10 on steroids back then uh and moses is essentially a commoner uh, sorry a slave of some sort anyway somehow they you know like a there was a children's movie i saw the prince of egypt you know and moses and uh the pharaoh uh, uh yeah they're just mates together having a laugh you know, they grew up together. They're just really on the same level, you know, and uh, perhaps even Moses has an edge, you know, on the Pharaoh. I don't think that happened, you know. I think the, the, 
the the story of Moses seems to be a bit of a standard tale that recurs throughout history. I think there was another one called Sargon, uh, who came before you know Arcadia. These are all Semitic sort of tropes, you know, or standard stories that get told over and over and over again by different mobs, um, with the names changed. You know, uh, uh, Sargon. He was. Um, he was a little baby that was put in a, a reed wicker basket and floated down the river and ended up in uh, the palace and the queen picked him up and brought him up and he grew up and became the great you know great king of another Semitic mob, not the Israelites, but the Arcadians. So, you know, you get this, you know. Uh, so, uh, completely forgotten what train of thought I was on when I started this bit. Uh, but, yeah, I have to be respectful of people who want facts with their history, you know. And um, you have to be respectful of, of everybody and their different ways of looking at things. Yeah, you know, there's more power sometimes in buying into myths, but then again there's more powerful in not buying into myths sometimes. Uh, so sometimes I think atheism, for example, is... Um, an extremely powerful thing, and I often think of an atheist soldier in in the trenches, and he sees one of his mates who's just about to get shot, and he throws himself in front of him, and he takes a bullet for him, you know. And I sort of think to myself, wow, an atheist soldier, he knows, and you would have to turn to philosophy to understand what the word knows means uh, and all the different meanings there are for the word knows uh, but he knows that uh, there is nothing after you know as soon as he dies that's it he's gone you know and he takes a bullet for someone else um, uh, that is extremely profound noble um, incredibly selfless um it's a kind of selflessness that perhaps a christian can never feel because even as a christian lies dying after having ta having taken a bullet for his mate there's a little something in his head i'm not saying it's any less noble sorry another airplane going past i'm not saying it's less noble but it's a different type of noble, you know. Anyway, he in, in the back of his mind, he's thinking, as I die now, I get my, you know, I will see you in heaven and I will live happily ever after. Um, and God will be pleased with this at least, you know, and all that sort of thing. So I see that as profound. So I see atheism as amazingly profound. Um, I see myths as amazingly profound in a different way, you know. Um, and, you know, I see Islam as having a certain profundity that uh, the Christian sort of idea of God hasn't got, you know, because the Christian version of God is he's essentially a male, which can only mean he's got sort of biological sort of male gender up there in heaven, you know, which I... <laughs> I don't know how to sort of think about that, except that he must have toggle, for example, under his toga, uh, which sort of I find a little bit tricky to think about. But then Islam has this version of God that 
uh, is a little bit more undefinable, you know, more sublime. Can't put words to him exactly. Uh, you know, so, well, can they put words to it? There's a whole Quran about it, but maybe that's not about God's per se or trying to describe God. I'm not sure. I've never read the Quran, but I get this sense that they haven't described God and what he looks like and all that sort of stuff, you know, whether he's sitting up there and he's got another human sort of form called Jesus at his right hand and sort of floating Holy Spirit on his left hand or anything like that. Uh, So, you know, um, vaguely all of this um, feeds in to the idea of Ethiopia in as much as they are a Christian country, uh, by definition originally, uh, at least in the you know, 300 AD sort of period. And, but now I think there's a strong Islamic Islam influence in there as well. I think they're essentially, they essentially call themselves a Christian country. So we have to be aware if we want to explore ancient Ethiopian history that their origin story is pretty much the, you know, the earth the world was created in seven days one you know and and light wasn't the first thing so you know as eddie is said he actually made the earth in the dark but that's okay god can do anything uh so um my favorite two creation stories are the greek one and you know which derives in some ways from the Egyptians, you know, which is shared by all of them uh, in that area, the Mediterranean. But the Greeks have their own sort of style in doing things. So my two favourite origin stories, myths, if you like, uh, working backwards type myths. Uh, the I do like the seven days, everything is created one. That's very colourful. I like that. And I do like the Greek one as well. And right there, I might end this episode by... Um, noting that even by saying that I am betraying my own social construction but that's not necessarily you know my my own the fact that I'm constructed Um, because what a coincidence I'm a westerner and what are my two favourite creation stories the two that underpin the western world the Judeo one seven day thing and the Greek one from, you know, the, comes to us through Odyssey, the Odyssey and the Iliad and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and Judeo-Christianity, you know, is a kind of blend of the ancient Greco-Roman uh, belief system and the ancient Judeo system. So we're all socially constructed. It's very hard to get away from that. I, if you even care, and I don't, um, but it's good to know that you're constructed and, it, you know, and, and to say to yourself, what a coincidence, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's like me, you know, what's my favourite music? Yeah, I do coding, you know, and what do I listen to as I'm coding for um, relaxation? I listen to 70s music, normally 70s rock and roll kind of music, rock, progressive rock and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I say to myself, 
What a coincidence. You know, I think the best music in the world is the music that I grew up as, with as a teenager, you know. Uh, so what a coincidence. All right, I'll leave off there, and I think I'll talk about Lullabella in the next episode. We will, we will stop in at specific places from now on as we continue our whirlwind uh, tour of ancient Ethiopia and then we'll come back to modern Ethiopia from time to time and stop in at places there too. All right, that'll do. Aha, uh, before I leave this episode, actually, I want to add something uh, and that is to have an idea in this podcast at least about what the difference between a myth and you know a real belief is and I'm only able to think like this because you know as far as I can tell the because the Greeks were good enough to think this sort of thinking through and then pass it down to me um wait I'll just jump in the car another aeroplane I'm underneath the flight path here uh now a myth you know, sometimes religious people say, oh, you know, you've got a myth. You know, they might say to a Greek, you know, you used to have myths. And, but we've got true beliefs, you know. So we've got true faiths, which is more powerful than your myths, you know, because our true faiths are reality for us, whereas your myths are not reality for you, you know. And, and that hits at the difference between a myth and a true faith belief, you know, a real belief, which sounds like an oxymoron, but just roll with it. I think you know what I mean. Now, uh, and the best way this was described to me was by Plato, of all people. And uh, this is where the Greeks are really helpful. And I don't mind talking about the Greeks a little bit because, as I said, in the year 11 and 12 Ethiopian history curriculum, I already saw that they start off with the way the Greeks have essentially taught the world to think on this level and or taught the, you know, a way that the Greeks have taught the world to think on this level and it goes like this um one of plato's students came to him with some idea you know saying i've got a bit of an idea of what happens to us after we die and plato said good that's great you know and and um and Plato was pretty much of the opinion that it's really good to have a bit of an idea of that because we don't actually know because no one's actually ever come back and told us. So Plato said, all right, let's hear it. And this guy, you know, said, I'm pretty keen on reincarnation, actually. And uh, Plato said, good, all right, use it. And he said, insert it. You know, that's something we don't know. So if we don't know the thing that... Ha- you know, if, if there's a gap in our knowledge, he would put it, if we don't know the thing that happens after we die, then create a thing and use it as a placeholder. But, he said, you know, I would call that a myth, he said, because it's not the thing that happens to you after you die. It's a thing. 
Now, the alternative to not having a myth, Plato might argue, and the Greeks might argue too, is have nothing at all and just say nothing, you know, and, and just go through your whole life saying, I don't know what happens to me after I die. I don't know, you know, and every time someone tries to bring up the discussion, yeah, no, no, end of discussion, we don't know, so let's not talk about it, you know. That is one way to go about it, and personally, I, I find that pretty boring. Um, uh, my personal opinion... Do I have opinions? I thought I didn't have any. Let's not, let's not um, lock myself down too much on that. Um, my personal thing is that, all right, I don't know what happens after we die. Uh, you know, and on a Thursday, I'm happy to immerse in the myth that it's reincarnation, and on Friday, I'm happy to immerse in the idea that we all go to heaven. On Saturday, I'm happy to be in, like the indigenous guys here in Australia and say we, you know, become one with the earth again, you know. And, um, and you know, another time I'm very happy to say there's nothing, you know, and, and there's something profound about that. As I said with my little story about the Ethiopian, uh, sorry, Ethiopian, <laughs> the atheist soldier, you know, I'm really keen on that atheist soldier. I think about him a lot. There's been a lot of atheist soldiers. Um, uh, so uh, this is the difference between myth and true belief, I think. Uh, now, does that make true belief, faith, more powerful than myths? I say not necessarily, you know. Um, if you know something to be true, and I, you know, if you if I have an idea of the way that lightning is created, um, and you know, I live in a time before people realised that it was friction between clouds creating static electricity and all that sort of stuff. If I lived in those times, I don't know what's creating that lightning that just came down and, you know, split my wife in two, boom, uh, blew her up. Um, I will, I'm happy to believe that bloody Zeus is at it again. I hate Zeus. Um, but if I was a Greek, and I am a bit of a Greek now because I'm, I think a lot like a Greek now because, you know, they've been educating the world for a very long time in the way they think. Um, I'm happy to say, listen, I'm going to blame Zeus. Uh, I'm going to say it was Zeus uh, because the only other alternative is to say, I don't know what caused that lightning bolt to come down and kill my wife, you know. Uh, I don't know why I picked that analogy, but there you go. Uh, I don't know why that lightning bolt came down and killed my favourite cherry tree. There you go, that sounds better. Um, so, you know, I've got two choices, you know. I've actually got three, cho well, three choices. I can say, I know that that was, you know, God's will. I know that for a fact. I'm in no doubt about that. All right, that's level one. Um, that's true belief. Level two is, I don't know why the world is unfair like that, I am going to make up a reason. That's myth, you know. That's a little bit like the working backwards idea that I started this episode off with, you know, the way that Ethiopians often like to think and a lot of the, and a lot of the rest of us also like to think, you know. Um, we don't know. There was another story I heard that Alexander the Great 
was defeated by an Ethiopian army, you know. Now, I don't think there's any evidence of that on the Greek side of the equation. Uh, Alexander is famous for never, never having uh, defeated, been defeated in battle. Uh, but then, you know, the Ethiopians might like to think, um, you know, there was a gap in Alexander's travel diary. Uh, so um, nobody knows what happened in that gap. Uh, so let's say he came down to try and attack Ethiopia and then we defeated him. All right. They've been, for my, as far as I'm concerned, they've inserted a myth into a, a gap you know, in the world's memory, knowledge, and filled it in with something that, you know, will make them feel like there's another great sort of power that um, Ethiopia has defeated. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, you know, level two is myth. Level one is true belief, you know. Some po- probably people truly believe that story about Alexander, you know. Um, and then there's another level, a third level, if you like, where you say, I don't know whether that happened or not, um, so I don't even want to talk about it. Which would make much shorter podcasts. Uh, but I'm not a short podcast kind of guy. You know? uh, I like to talk. These days... Oh, sorry, hang on, I've got to go. Yeah, here we go. Hello.